Hello, mamas, and welcome to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast. Today, we are talking all about the perfect mother myth. This is a really interesting chat, and I know you're going to love it. Enjoy. Hey, mama, I'm sending you wonderful pregnancy vibes. It's time for you to guide you through. Let's take some time for you. It's pregnancy with physio Laura. Hello, mamas, and welcome back to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast. Today, I have a very interesting chat for you. So, I'm talking to the wonderful Dr. Sophie Brock, who is a sociologist and she has studied motherhood studies and how it relates to our culture and society. And she speaks to this topic so well. And I found when I stumbled across her podcast, which you should definitely all go and check out, I just resonated with the title of every single podcast episode that she had. So I definitely encourage you to go and check out the Good Enough Mother podcast. That is what she runs. And she is a wonderful mentor and runs loads of different courses. So go check her out. She's on Instagram at Dr. Sophie Brock. But today we are talking all about the perfect mother myth. And I didn't probably realize I had my own perfect mother myth in my head until this language became available to me via the means of Sophie and other people on Instagram. And I realized that I had this list in my head of what made the perfect mother. And that was often the reasons I beat myself up when I was having a bad day or wasn't living up to these internalized expectations I had of myself of what I needed to do to show up as the perfect mother. And it's really interesting to learn how much we've internalized through our culture and our society about what what motherhood means and what makes up the perfect mother and how to balance that with career and guilt and shame and all these other things that present and why so many women really struggle in motherhood and really feel so alone because we have this expectation we're trying to live up to that really is not our own. So I think once you can write a list of your own values and what actually matters to you, you can leave all the other expectations behind. And I've done that myself and it is such a freeing and peaceful place to be. So this episode is going to be amazing and I know you're going to love it. And if you do, please go connect with Sophie at Dr. Sophie Brock on Instagram. And as always, I'd love to hear from you. Please come on over to at Physio Laura and let me know what your favorite part of this podcast was. And just to let you all know, for anyone who is interested in signing up for my online membership program, The Pregnancy Posse, I have been running this online program oh my gosh, for four years now. It's been amazing. We have had thousands of pregnant women come through the doors. They love the weekly workouts. They love the pelvic floor reminders. They love the active birth class, how to prepare your body and your mind for birth and all of the Q&As I've done over the years. It's such a great one-stop shop for preparing for pregnancy and birth. I am closing the doors. So this program will not be available again. We have one week left till I close the door. So I do encourage you Go on over to thepregnancypossy.com if you are interested in signing up. If you sign up now, you still get access for the entire duration of your pregnancy, but I will be closing the doors forever. This program will not be running again. So please, I encourage you. I don't want you to email me and say, Laura, I missed out. Please go and sign up if it is something that you've been looking at before I close the doors. (laughs) So without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful chat with Dr. Sophie Brock. Welcome to the podcast, Sophie. I am, yeah, really excited for our chat today. Like I was saying to you just before, when I was first introduced to you and your work and I was scrolling through your Good Enough Mother podcast, I just remember going, oh my gosh, yes, I'd never resonated with every title of a podcast so much in my life. So I'm excited for you to share all of that wisdom with the audience today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Laura. And I love hearing when something does resonate because that's that sense of connection, isn't it? That so many of us are wanting and seeking. And so when we land in a space and we're like, ah, yes, this is for me. It's really wonderful to celebrate that. 100%. And I think that's what the women listening today are going to take out of this is, ah, I feel so seen. And this is not just in my head. This is something that Sophie has studied. That's how much this is a thing. Like you can study this. It's not an internal problem. It's often a societal, cultural problem that a lot of women I know, for sure, from the women I speak to in my posse program, the women I speak to online, this is something that women think they're alone with a lot of the time or that it's their problem. So let's talk about modern motherhood to start with. 
And let's talk about probably what's going on with modern motherhood and the current social constructs and how maybe they're not serving women like they should. Yeah, I hear you. I think that there can be a a real sense of loneliness as mothers when we are struggling in ways that we feel as though it's our fault and that we're not good enough and we need to just read or find the latest hack or the thing that is going to make us all of a sudden change and be able to nail our lives. There's this sense that actually it's this individual responsibility, as you say. Part of what I hope we can do in opening this conversation is to actually situate ourselves individually within our society and culture. And that is, as you have already said, affirming, validating, I hope. Um, And that's what I experience in lots of mothers I share this information with, because it's not certainly not just me who is engaged in this work. There are many maternal scholars, and there have been for decades, who have been speaking about motherhood in this way and talking about saying, hey, there's more to motherhood than this. There, There is a bigger story here that is at play that we just don't really talk about in our society and culture. And so part of what I hope for us to be able to do is to say, hey, there's a story here that's bigger than us alone. Let's find out what it is. Let's investigate it. Let's pull it apart. And then let's see how we can start to write a new one. So something that we can initially think about, and I know that you wanted to speak about this, so I'll dive into it straight away around the fish tank of motherhood model. Because when we say, oh, the social construction of motherhood or our society and culture, it can be really hard to know what we're actually talking about. It's can you point it out to me? Tell me the actual sentence that will make me understand this. (laughs) Yes, make it clear because we are already managing so much on our mental loads, cognitively, emotionally, in supporting our children and ourselves that it's like, I need things to be easy to understand. And something that exists when we say society and culture, sometimes it can be hard to know what we're actually talking about. So this is an analogy that I developed based on some research that I did as part of my PhD. And essentially what it's getting at is to help make society and culture and the story it tells us about motherhood a bit more tangible. So if we were all to imagine a round glass fish tank and what this fish bowl represents is our society. So that's the world that we're living within. And as the fish inside swimming around, we're the mothers. And it's not just mothers, actually all individuals, obviously, are living within a society. And we're swimming around within this water and the water is our culture. So the fish are the mothers, the individuals. The water is our culture that we're absorbing, that we're breathing in. And then the tank is our societal structure. That's our institutions. So I'm slowing down a little bit because I know that there's a lot of moving pieces here. How this can look is that us as the individual fish, as the mothers, we're swimming around, we're doing our mothering within a particular culture that tells us what it means to be a good mother. We're breathing these cultural norms in, usually without knowing it, right? The fish swimming around in the water doesn't necessarily know it's in water. This is just what life is. So we've been breathing in these social ideas of what a good mother is way before we become mothers. Like all of us are in this fish tank. We've been in it since we were born. It's just that we've each absorbed it in different ways, right? We're swimming around, trying to do our mothering. We've got these ideas that we've internalized about what it means to be a good mother. And we're doing that within a particular tank, a particular society and culture. Now, that looks different depending on where you're living. So if you're in the US and you have no paid maternity leave, that's going to impact your experience of mothering differently to if you're here in Australia and you have access to maternity leave, still inadequate, but to make a point, right? Depending on where you're situated, your society and the institutions and the policy and the economy that you're living within will come to shape your individual experience. And what is also valuable, I think, to remember is that this tank, the society, that looks different according to different generations. So how your mother or your grandmother, the tank they were living within, looked slightly different to what your tank looks like. And so when we're going about doing our mothering, and that is, when I say mothering, I'm talking about the practice of caregiving. So this can look like cuddling and rocking our children. 
It can look like emotionally regulating with them, co-regulating with them. It can look like changing nappies. It can look like breastfeeding them or bottle feeding them. It looks like the actual care work of mothering. That's different to motherhood, the tank we live within. So making that distinction does a couple of things. It firstly allows us to recognize that it's not just us. That how we mother, how we do our mothering, isn't all down to choice. It's not all down to, we all just live and choose differently. We're shaped by a particular context. And why that can be really powerful is it takes us back to our intention in moving into this conversation. It can be incredibly validating and affirming to know that our experiences of what it's meant for us to become mothers has been shaped by forces outside of us. And here's the bit that I would love people to hold as a takeaway because it's what we're talking about here is a shift in thinking, a shift in our paradigm or our worldview. So it's, it's big and it can feel a bit rattly at first. But how we can bring this down to an individual level of how it's affecting my life is to think, what do I believe it means to be a good mother? What does it take to be a good mom? If I had to explain to an alien that just flew down from Mars and they said to me, tell me about what your society says a perfect mum is, what would I say back to them? It doesn't necessarily have to do with it, what we think our values are or how we're raising our kids. What does our culture tell us? Our culture tells us that good mothers are selfless, that you love motherhood, that you're fulfilled by your role as a mother, that you don't feel emotions like anger or apathy or boredom or frustration or impatience. You're able to get it together. You're able to hold it together. You're able to hold competing things. So you're not only the perfect, self-sacrificing, ever-present mother to your children, you also have a flourishing, rewarding, financially abundant career where you thrive. Right? And you're never going to be putting your children before work because you're a good employee or a good business owner or a good career woman. But also, you never put your work before your kids because your children always come first. You, in this cultural idea of what it means to be a perfect mum, it's often assumed that she's white, that she is in, she's heterosexual and she's in a monogamous relationship, presumed often to be married. She becomes a mother at a particular stage of her life. So she's not too young because that's irresponsible. She's not too old because then she's a geriatric mother and that could be irresponsible, right? And She's been so self-focused on her career and she's left it too late. There's all of these different messages that come across, right? She became pregnant easily. She had a glowing pregnancy that she loved and appreciated. She's grateful every minute of her mothering journey. Uh, there, and we could spend the whole episode talking about this, right? I just know everyone listening is giggling along because they're like, this is absurd, but also I can fully acknowledge that's probably a similar story that I'm running and the person listening is running. Yes, carry on. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. And this goes to not only our expectations of motherhood, our actual experience transitioning into motherhood. This has to do with pregnancy, birth, the immediate postpartum, the challenges that we experience in that stage. And then it also has to do with our children, right? So who did we expect our children to be? And attached to this, in this tank, all of the things that I've just listed out, we can think of them as the rules of perfect motherhood. So imagine a big black texture and we're like, she's never angry. She loves every minute. And we have these rules all around us that we're swimming within the reflections of and we've absorbed. But part of that rule book also applies to our kids. So we have the good baby that mm -hmm. sleeps through the night and feeds easily and is handed around to anyone and you wouldn't even know they're there. And then they become the independent toddler and the well-mannered child who always shares and doesn't have tantrums and isn't disrespectful. There are all these ways that actually this continues on and on. And what it does is it traps us as mothers because we can never be the idealized mother that our culture holds up as the standard. And our children will never be the idealized perfect child that our culture holds up. And mothers are trapped because we are judged by things that are outside of our control, who our children are and on how we choose, in inverted commas, to live and lead our lives. So that's a probably no, I, I, summary. 
I love so much everything that you said. There's so many places I want to take that. But firstly, thank you for even bringing the fish tank analogy to life because I agree. When I say culture and social constructs and all these things, they can sound very wishy-washy and it can be hard to be like, yeah, I get that, but I don't. Like, tell me, what it, what does it actually mean for my mothering and how does it actually influence my mothering? So I really love that analogy because I picture myself swimming as this fish and I'm gulping in all this water about all these cultural norms. And I, like you said, I don't know I'm in water because it's, it's not tangible. You can't hold it. So we're drinking in all these shoulds and rules and ideas about what it is to be a mother, but it's hard to even place that. It's hard to actually say, I have all these ideas around what it is to be a mother. It's often just that we feel shame and we feel guilt and we feel all these emotions and we probably can't really identify why we feel like that. Why are we failing? Why are we so bad at this? Why can I not do everything I'm trying to? Why am I always juggling all these balls and always dropping them? And why do I constantly feel like I'm in this no-win situation? And it's really hard to hold that tangibly. So I really like the idea of imagining the water and it's just like invisible and it's around us and it seeps into every pore, but it's not so easy to identify. So I really like that bit. And then I really like the tank bit as well, because it's like you said, how we are in Australia and even more broadly, Western society versus other countries and other societies, it's a different tank. And generationally, it's a different tank. So I think that's a really cool way to understand you as the fish and what is around you that is shaping your experience of motherhood? And I want to go into the perfect mother myth as well. And I actually did a little bit of my own journaling on this that I will read out. But I'd love to know what your take is. And maybe this is a conversation for later. Let me know. But you're a fish in this tank and maybe you're having a bit of a shit time in motherhood. You're not feeling like you're doing a great job. Do we change the water? Do we break the tank? Like, where, where do we go from there? What is the next steps for women to even move into more authentic mothering or mothering that just feels really good for them? Yeah, it's a good question. I'll say that I don't have all of the answers here. So <laughs> Promising that, don't pedestal this information <laughs> much because this is actually what's really important is that we don't create a new tank and a new set of rules because that can be part of what we can sometimes do unintentionally when we are trying to break free from certain constraints. We label a new way of doing things as liberation and then it ends up becoming a new set of rules. Am I empowered enough as a mother? Am I, I've learned about, about this good enough mothering thing. Am I doing that right? So just prefacing it in that way, I think to move back one step and then answer your question is to identify the ways in which we're actually gulping in that water, as you say, as we're breathing that in. And how that actually looks is through our relationships. So how you were mothered, the way that mothering was modeled to you is one way. Um, the conversations that you have heard, overheard and absorbed with, within social relationships and in our community. So this often looks like judgment of other mothers. Mm -hmm. So even as a child, like what conversations have you heard judging other mothers and then what have you internalized that to mean about what a good mother is? It comes through our media and advertising. So think about the mothers that you have watched on television and in film and in movies and TV series. Like how is she being caricatured? What is she like? It also comes through in our institutions. So when you're filling out forms or paperwork, if you go through the maternity system and you're marked in a particular way because of your age or your body size or whatever it may be, it can happen in the schooling system as well. So what I'm saying here is that when we're gulping in the water, that is happening all of the time in our lives and we actually can't avoid it. And how I think about it in a way that can feel like we get a bit more agency is to think about us each having almost an antenna old school radios and you imagine that antenna on our shoulder and what we're doing as part of this conversation and those who are listening is you are fine tuning that antenna because you're picking up all of these messages regardless you're a human being that is social right unless you're a complete hermit right you're picking up all of these messages what we're doing is we're creating greater sensitivity to the messages that we receive so that when we next hear that comment from someone about, oh, I can't believe she did that. Who does she think she is? Or hasn't she thought of her children? I can't believe she's gone back to work so early. Or is she just a mother? When we hear these things, we can go, oh, prick, I can hear something here that is telling me something about our social messaging on what it means to be a good mother. So to move to your question as to how do we start to resist that, change that, make a difference, the first step is awareness. And that's what we're doing right now. 
So it's education on Mm -hmm. this is a thing, this exists, here is what it is. And we need to stay in that space for a while because I this is a lot of kind of information. Yeah. But the next step is to tune in. It's curiosity is what it is. It's to tune in to the messages that we start hearing and just notice them. You don't need to do anything with them. You don't need to speak back to them. Just notice them. And alongside that, start to examine what signals have I taken into my heart? Like what have I taken on? as a belief system that perhaps was never mine to carry. What do I actually think here? And a way we can do that is it sounds like you've already started doing this, Laura, in writing out your list of perfect mother shoulds of what you've internalized. And you go through each one and you tick, cross or circle. So if you think, actually, that's an important value to me. The perfect mother cooks organic food from scratch for her children. She never gives them frozen food. Okay, maybe for me, I'm someone that really highly values, I'm a naturopath, nutritionist. That's something that's super important to me. So I'm going to keep that as a value. Other things, oh, children should never jump on couches or they need to have their hair brushed every morning before leaving. I don't really care so much about that. So let's cross that off. And the things that you're unsure about, circle them. We're allowed to find our way with this. Are you speaking generally or are you speaking for you just then? Generally. Yeah, generally. Yes. Yeah, I could speak for me too, but... But find the things that actually are close to your heart and the things that you want to start to let go of. And then speaking in a really summarized way, what it looks like is little acts of resistance. That looks like maybe saying no when you're asked to volunteer for canteen duty for the fourth time this term, (laughs) whatever it can look like. Little acts of resistance, boundaries, conversations, openings, sitting down and finishing your cup of tea before getting up and clearing the table, like little things in your everyday life. And they will actually build momentum. And the more that you're able to connect with yourself, the less work it feels like to try and identify what it is you want, need, and think. Mm -hmm. And the next part of this is connection with others. I don't think we can do this alone. We need to be able to connect with other mothers who at least have a level of curiosity about doing motherhood differently. And Mm -hmm. I imagine it as we're each like little fish, someone in my membership once years ago uh, came up with this hashtag of ram the tank. And she's like, ram the tank and imagine us all creating those little tiny cracks. And that is how we create social movements and social change. I love that. And I definitely want to dive into that connecting with mothers and women and how we can move forward on that. Going back to the perfect mother myth, I think that is such a fantastic way to start because I think awareness and curiosity absolutely is key because whether you know what to do with that yet or not, you need to first understand what is your antenna picking up right now? and what have you taken on to be truth that maybe actually isn't truth and just having that awareness. So I did pen to paper. I love writing things down, but I thought in the spirit of this interview, I would just write down quickly what I thought the perfect mother was in my mind and maybe just quickly explain how that has really held me back in motherhood. So I wrote down, what is a good mother? So one who is present with her kids, patient, never yells or shames them. One who cooks delicious and healthy food and does it happily with a smile on her face. One who makes her house feel like a home and keeps it clean and tidy. One who is dedicated to service and always willing to help others out, always spacious to be generous. One who looks after herself, keeps fit, presents well, and is sexy and confident in her mothering role. And I was like, whoa, when I wrote that out, I was like, I can see how all of these statements, even though I am very aware, But if I just quickly jot down who is the perfect mother, how they keep me really trapped and really triggered when I don't show up as any of these things, even though I know and I have the awareness that's not really important to me, majority of those things. So then my next exercise is what you said. And I went through and I went, is this true? Is this actually what I think for me makes me a good mother? And hardly any of them were truly true, like black and white statements. And it was so powerful for me to go, oh, I'm allowed to let that go. Like I'm allowed to not do everything on this list and I'm still a good mum, and I'm still a good wife and I'm still a good friend. I'm still a good, whatever it is that I'm judging myself for not being good enough for. And that was such a powerful exercise for me. And just little things, like I mentioned one who always has a clean and tidy home and it always feels really lovely. Like I used to really get tripped up by my home being messy when people came around because to me it was a reflection that I didn't have my stuff together. 
that I wasn't coping, that I was disheveled, that like I didn't look after my space. And when I let that go and I was like, it's okay if it looks like children have lived in my house, I can't tell you how much weight that lifted off my shoulders. And it seems so silly because I think it's easier for me to say this to a friend. If a friend came to me with that, I'd be like, girlfriend, I don't care what your house looks like. I don't look at that. In fact, I actually feel better when I go to someone's house with this stuff on the floor because I feel like we're, we've got common humanity there. But I still had that same story for myself about what it meant about me. And funnily enough, when I mentioned in my perfect motherhood statement, she's sexy and confident and fit and looks after herself and presents really well. I did a podcast recently and it was about fashion and styling and like just feeling good in our clothes. And one of the topics that came up was about having mess on us, like kids with snotty noses and grubby hands and whatnot. And this lady was talking about, why are we trying to hide the mess? Like we all have kids who have grubby hands, who touch us, who have snotty nose. Like we all are in that together. Why are we trying to hide that? And that was a real light bulb moment for me again, where I was like, like, it is okay, Laura, to look like you have children that touch you. It doesn't mean that you are disheveled and you can't even put yourself together and you can't even present nicely and but you don't look amazing. And that is okay. That actually doesn't mean anything about your mothering if you don't make it mean it. So they were just two recent light bulb moments that I've had, which I know a lot of women listening to will also go, ah, oh, yes, these are the shoulds. These are the rules I'm placing around myself that I don't necessarily need to keep carrying on. So I just wanted to share that for anyone listening so that they can really go away with this exercise and write it down and bring awareness to what messages are coming in and what they're taking on and then choose whether or not that's actually true for them. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And look, celebrating you for going through that exercise because it's quite a vulnerable thing to do, to go, okay, what do I, what beliefs here have I internalized? And then how do I evaluate these in response to how I want to lead my life? Like this is These are questions that can be daunting to ask ourselves because it also means that there may be shifts that happen in our daily life and any sort of change, even when it's exciting, can sometimes feel difficult. But I think one that you've touched on there, which is so prevalent and predominant, is this connection between the domestic realm and domestic labor and mothering labor. Like they're two different, taking care of a house and taking care of a child are connected, of course. Children make the house dirty and they create washing. We all know this. But... They're also separate things. They're separate things that require a different skill set. They're valued in different ways. And something that I've written about before is that to tie good mothering to good housekeeping sets us up in a trap that we can never get out of because housework is work that never ends. So we're essentially perpetually tied and we'll never be able to continue feeling good enough amongst the presence of our children, because what we do as work is constantly undone. So I think that can be a really important place for us to start. 100%. Because when you say that, like that breaks my heart because so many of us would get caught in that trap of just never feeling enough and never feeling on top of it because it's literally impossible. There is no finish goal. Like I've seen, I'm sure you've seen it. There's that funny meme There's two versions of it, but one is cleaning up with children around is like brushing your teeth while eating Oreos. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Or there's like the other meme where the woman is at the beach and the tide's coming in and she's trying to sweep the water back into the ocean. (laughs) Yes, I've seen both of them. They're great. (laughs) And I think alongside this, we can also say, I'm sure some of your listeners can relate to this. There's rage cleaning as a phenomenon, right? But also that sometimes depending on also your, your sensory preferences, it can actually be really important for you to have spaces in your home that are clean and tidy and ordered because actually it feels too chaotic when my environment is chaotic. And so how can that look then? And I think coming back to going, okay, where is this coming from? Is this coming from a should or a social pressure or is this coming from an individual need? And how do I separate them and then find a way to orchestrate having my needs met as a mother? Yeah, I think that's such a good point you make because you can should yourself in the opposite direction, right? Like you can go, oh, I don't need to worry about any of this. And that's not something that has to define me. But if it truly is coming from internal, and don't get me wrong, I actually am the same. Like I, I've acknowledged, for example, I like my floors tidy, like swept and I don't want to feel like I'm walking around with dust on my feet. But I genuinely could not care about the laundry or the bathrooms. Like they're just not areas that I can close a door and just pretend they don't exist. Whereas The floors, I like to be clean and tidy. And 
being able to pull apart like what actually is coming from you, not from these societal pressures and what you should do. That's the power, right? That's what we're saying to women on this podcast today. It's not about, well, blow out those shoulds, but introduce these ones, which looks more like liberated motherhood. That's not at all. That's just another set of rules, right? We're just saying, find out what you want for your mothering experience and your mothering journey and what feels unique and authentic to you and go with that, regardless of what you're hearing from the outside. So I think that's such a powerful message to reiterate to these women. Now, let's go back to your point earlier about step three. So we were aware and then we're curious. And then step three is also then connecting with other women and ramming the tank together. So can you talk about how women might do this? And then I'd love for you to then bring that conversation into what you term the mummy wars and how sometimes we can get wrapped up in identity issues with motherhood, which actually pits us against each other. So we'll start with connection and then we'll move into maybe how that for some women can actually disconnect us from one another and create this comparison and competition. Yeah, it's really tricky, right? Because we're living within these environments that on one hand, we're a globalized community. Like we look at processes of globalization and we're more connected than we ever have been before. But then in other ways, we're more disconnected and lonely than we ever have been before. So there's lots of different ways that I guess looking at the social science and research, you could um, go different routes and pathways with this. But I guess where I would come to is going, okay, what is one way in which I can ignite one little potential? Or another way of saying it is I can plant a little seed of connection somewhere. So that may be through a conversation at the school gate, through a connection that you have with somebody that you, there's a mum who I see every day when I go and get my coffee and we've just sparked up a conversation here and there and following your own sense of who may be a connection that you can explore without a whole heap of loaded pressure. Like I need to find my liberated motherhood village. <laughs> I think that this is where social media and online platforms can be really powerful. There are certainly a lot of drawbacks, of course, to online spaces as we are, would be able to discuss, but the potential power in them is that we can go towards facilitators, course creators, uh, people who are running women's circles, for example, and we can go to spaces both in, in person, if they're within your community, if not, create it and or online and find connection with other women who share similar values, who are on similar journeys of learning. And so I'm sure that you are connected already, Laura, with spaces people could go to for this. And I have motherhood studies practitioners who run these types of programs and experiences for mothers. And we don't need, there's a lot that we could get into in pulling apart this idea of the village and community and the fact that we're isolated in our mothering in ways that actually isn't natural. We're not designed to be mothering in this way. And we need more. At the same time, I think it can be comforting and perhaps dial down the pressure a little bit to say one or two genuine connections with mothers that you feel heard by and that you can hear can be life-changing. Mm -hmm. And so just knowing that if we can do this work in connecting with ourselves first, through that process, we can open connection with others. Does that answer your question about yeah. the connection I, I absolutely agree with that in that I think if we connect first with ourselves, it, I do think that makes it easier to connect with others, especially when we're looking for authentic relationships, because the more you are, the more you attract people that really value you. Whereas I was just thinking, for example, about the messy house situation. And I was just thinking about if you're like speed cleaning before someone comes because you're worried about judgment or you're worried about how that perceives you, it's actually not almost like letting someone into just how you normally live your life and how you are. And I can see how then it creates all this pressure because then they're like, oh God, like Laura has such a clean house. Like when she comes over, I guess I better make sure that. It and then it's this inauthentic connection piece where you, I just feel like if you could just walk over to someone's house and they're just authentically who they are and they're not putting all this pressure on themselves to be anything else. I can imagine that connection piece would be really beautiful and really powerful because mother, another mother might go, oh, this is how you are. Like you don't need to pretend to be anything other than how you actually are. So yeah, I think that's really beautiful. Connect with yourself first and then you don't need many, like one or two genuine connections with other women, I think is so soul filling and so transformative to your motherhood experience. If you can, like you said, feel seen and feel heard and then listen to others as well. I think that's really powerful. So what if we talk about the flip side of that though? Because whenever we open ourselves in that way, there's a level of vulnerability that's required in that. And sometimes it's not safe for us to do. So depending on what communities you're within, depending on if you, for example, are not white, right? So we have this standard 
of actually who is prioritized and privileged within our society and culture, like whose voices are able to be platformed and heard, what connections are able to be seen and what ones happen underground from institutions and within essentially power structures. So just naming that for some people, depending on if you have a disability, if your child has a disability, if you're a single mother, if you're somebody who in some way, which many people do, will fit some sort of marginalized identity or have it have be existing in ways that are not privileged and normalized necessarily, it can feel harder to make those connections and it can feel like more of a risk to try to do them because there is a level of rejection that can and often is involved when trying to carve out new ways of being and connecting with other people. So whenever we go to do something differently, it also means we're pulling away from something that has been done. Another way to think about this is that circling back a little bit to the start of our conversation, whenever we're birthing a new perspective, a new worldview, shifting our paradigm of how we see ourselves or the world, that newness can be validating and exciting and interesting, but it also often means a letting go of an old way of seeing, an old way of thinking. And not to reinforce that as super binary, but just to name that this can sometimes feel hard and it can feel like a processing of a loss in some ways too, a loss of particular relationships and what you hoped that they could have been. So it's complicated, isn't it? But getting to what you're wanting to talk about with Mummy Wars is that there's two things that I would say in prefacing a conversation about Mummy Wars. One being that we've been told a very particular story by our society and culture that positions women as in competition with each other because it serves existing power structures for us to be in competition with each other. And perhaps we can go into the reasons why that is in a little bit. But I am, I don't know if I'd use the word skeptical, hesitant, curious, take a little bit of a pause whenever we're told this is how it is and this is how women are and this is how mothers are. So to take it with a grain of salt when we hear about mummy wars, and notice it as perhaps a cultural phenomenon or a thing that is talked about and then bring it down to going, how does this actually play out in my lived experience? Because many mothers have experienced the opposite. They've experienced actually other mothers as being the key sources of their support and connection and relationships. So that's the first thing I'd say. And the second thing is that judgment between mothers and comparison between mothers very much does exist. Surprise. And it's actually a function of patriarchal culture, or in other words, of the tank. So in order for the structure to continue as it does, we actually need to be swimming in different directions. So coming back to this analogy to help visualize and make it a bit more tangible, where when we are swimming in one direction, right, this may be, for example, I've made the decision and I have capacity to stay at home with my children rather than re-engage in my career. I can tend to move in a direction and find others who have shared values, right? Normal, natural, this is part of us finding belonging. But we can see other fish moving in the other direction, moving com perhaps a completely opposite way to us. And we can look at them with hopefully curiosity, but sometimes with judgment about why are you making that decision or what's led to you living your life in that way? And if we're not feeling super confident and solid in how we're living, we can have a greater incentive to make the other way wrong. So by me talking about how could they live like that or how could they mother like that or how can they do that, that can help me feel better and more solid in my decision. So without, I mean, it's, this is complex kind of theory and talking about relationships, mm. but in a simplified way, pitting mothers against each other is also a way for us to remain disconnected and that ultimately serves broader power structures because things mm. are the same. So you mentioned we might get into it. What, why do you think that pitting mothers against each other serves that? What is the reason behind why that would be happening? What is it? How is it serving that tank? Because mothers are more powerful than we ourselves even acknowledge. Boom. And yeah, basically. <laughs> because I think that if we were to get really honest with ourselves, we need to reckon with the fact that mothers are the ones who not always, but a lot of the time are doing the primary caring work, not only for our children, but for others in our community. And that is an incredibly powerful position to be because you're shaping the health, physical, mental well-being, and health of future generations 
in the way that you show up in your day-to-day life. So it is a huge responsibility. It is both a privilege and a burden and it's unsupported. And this is why mothers and those who are primary carers and engage in unpaid care work need greater institutional, social and community support and financial support in order to be able to continue doing the work they're doing. So I think in short, we actually are a lot more powerful than we or our society likes to believe. And if we were able to come together in connection in sustainable and empowering ways, that could actually create huge social change in ways that maybe we're not ready for. 100% agree. Like I, I think it is such a powerful role that is so diminished and so devalued. And I agree, it's scary to many people what mothers could do if they truly own their power. It's amazing. And so it makes sense to me. I just wanted to hear what your take on that was. But I'm just thinking as well, when you're talking about the fish swimming in another direction and how if you're not solid on your direction, you start to question and maybe judge why someone else is swimming in another direction. And I remember this quote from Gary Vee and he was talking about He wanted to build the tallest building in the city by building the tallest building in the city, not by knocking others down. And I think there's something really beautiful about that, like being able to just, because so much of when you're judging someone else, you're judging yourself, right? Like it's actually an internalized judgment of where you're at in your life. And I think it's really powerful to be able to zoom out and really, truly be okay with what you're doing and really, truly then for be okay with what somebody else might be doing, even if it's not what you're doing. So for you to be right, someone else doesn't need to be wrong. And I think that's really powerful. But again, I think that's a super complex layered topic. And there's a million reasons why women feel that. And I think that's a great segue into what I want to talk about now, which is mum guilt. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's a huge driving factor behind why many women would judge what themselves and what others are doing is because they feel so much guilt. I know that mum guilt is just, it literally is a coined phrase of its own. We all know what mum guilt means. It's not just guilt. It's for mums specifically. So Where do you think that is coming from? Why is it so prevalent that women are feeling guilty in motherhood? Because it's a way that we police ourselves to remain inside the tank and have the tank unchanged. Mum guilt serves two functions. One is as a form of regulation, self-regulation. I don't mean when we talk about it as emotional regulation, but self-policing. And that can be in response to the rules of the tank, of the perfect mother myth, the patriarchal society, or it could be in response to our own values. And so I see this as, again, visually thinking about little guards on our shoulder. And we have a guard on one side of our shoulder that is holding a little bat and they're like, get in line, get in line, you're doing it wrong. You're not being present enough. You're not giving them enough attention. You haven't made enough food for them. You haven't volunteered enough. You haven't, look how scraggly they look. You have, I don't know, whatever. There could be a million different things, right? That are all those shoulds and rules. And we can feel guilty because of that and think, I'm not a good enough mum. I need to do better. Or we can have the little guard on the other side of us who is whispering in our ear saying, that's not really in alignment with your values. What are you doing? You just yelled at your child and made them really scared. That's not how you want a mother. And so guilt is not something we want to get rid of as mothers. I know mum guilt feels really constraining and can feel awful. And a lot of the time I think we're actually talking about shame when we say mum guilt, but we don't want to get rid of it. We want to use our mum guilt. And so I talk about this as guilt for growth. So if we're feeling mum guilt, let's unpack where is this guilt coming from? Is it coming from that guard who's employed by the rules of our society or is it coming from the guard of our own values? Mm -hmm. And that then gives us the agency. And when we're able to do that, we can, all of a sudden, it doesn't actually matter that much how others are mothering. (laughs) Like it really doesn't because they're mothering according to their own circumstances and context and whatever is going on for them. We can see it with greater curiosity of what this brings up within us. Why am I feeling triggered or guilty or activated in in this way by how someone else may be living? I love that because I was thinking it's so complex and how do you deconstruct where that guilt is coming from? Because genuinely guilt is an emotion that is meant to be felt because like you said, it helps to steer you back on track with your values. But how, how do we deconstruct that? But I really like, yeah, one shoulder with one guard, one shoulder with the other guard. And it's just a practice, I assume. The more you sit with that guilt and really lean into it, I'm sure the better you get at discerning where it's coming from. If it's coming from this cultural standard of things that you think you should be doing and therefore you feel guilty because you're not, 
or if it's coming from true internal value systems. And I think that's such a powerful thing to differentiate because guilt is a really heavy emotion. And I think we can feel that a lot of the time. But if you learn to drop the guilt that you don't really need to be carrying, I think that's really important. When you said that you felt like guilt was actually shame a lot of the time, could you just dive into what you meant by that and maybe where that's coming from or like how women would be able to work out if it is guilt or shame that they might be feeling? Yep. So I would allude to some of Brene Brown's work. She does a lot of work on shame and vulnerability, but something that I've heard her say before, which I think is a great distinction, is guilt. I'm feeling guilty and bad about something that I've done. Shame. I'm feeling bad about who I am. Yeah. And so yeah. a lot of the time when we're saying, I feel mum guilt, I feel mum, I'm a bad mum, I'm not a good enough mum, that actually is shame. Mm-hmm. And in whose eyes are you talking about? And that can feel debilitating. When you feel that sense of, I it can go into unworthiness. Like, I mm-hmm. did I even make the right decision in becoming a mother? Mm-hmm. And I'm not enough for these kids. Who am I? And I'm, it can feel all-encompassing and really huge. So for us to go right back to that step of what you've demonstrated in writing out that list of perfect mother shoulds, that's going to be the step that is going to help us pull apart our values and the shoulds. Mm-hmm. And so the guilt work is really the kind of next step of that practice of integrating how is this playing out in my life? And then from there, what is actually underlying all of this is self-worth and identity. Right? So that's actually at the root of all of this, because if we place our worthiness in our motherhood, we will always be feeling as though we're failing in some way when we're living within the tank that we're living within. So I know I've just thrown a couple of two things in there, but I think just recognizing that a lot of the time, if we're judging ourselves as to our competence as a mother, a lot of the time that's shame rather than Mm. guilt. No, I think that's really good differentiation because like you said, one's a real assault on your character and your person. I think that's really important. And I, I just love how you've been able to take these really big, complex, layered topics, but make them feel really tangible. I feel like everyone listening to this episode has some really practical things they can do now. So they can go and write down in their mind, what is this perfect mother on a pedestal? And then they can go and do the tick cross circle exercise next to it to work out what of those is actually theirs and what is cultural. And then they can also go through that next level and go through the guilt. And am I feeling guilty because it's coming from an internal values place or am I feeling guilty because it's coming from a should and a societal? So I just love that you've been able to take these really big topics and actually make it really digestible for women to then go and do something with this information. Because that's what I always try and do with this podcast is let's talk everything, but then let's actually have some action steps of what can I do after this conversation to actually go and initiate change. If that is something I feel called to do, you might listen to this and go, I'm sweet. I'm good. But I know many women will want to go and do those exercises now. It'll be really fascinating for women to see what they come with. Now, mum guilt very much comes up when women are talking about paid work. And you speak so well to this care versus career conundrum, which is always so hard for me to say. There's so many C's in there. (laughs) But I know this is huge, like mothers doing their work as mothers and mothering and domestic chores and everything that comes with that role versus paid work and how society values people who do paid work versus the unpaid work. So can you speak to this conundrum that so many women, myself included, are really struggling with? Yeah. So what we've been focused on a lot of this conversation is essentially the perfect mother myth or the rules of that tank. So if we were all to imagine a these two circles, I might send you a graphic of the <laughs> show notes, that we, and one circle represents the perfect mother myth And an overlapping circle represents the perfect worker or the perfect employee. And then the where they overlap is motherhood and mothers. We're stuck between them. And all of the ways in which we've spelt out what the perfect mother myth is, essentially let's encapsulate that with selflessness, like the giving up of yourself when you're putting others first. If we were to move across to the other circle, and this is very much based in kind of capitalist individualistic Western society, like there's a lot of big isms here that are at play, but in a really simplified way, part of what the worker side says is be self-motivated, be a self-starter, work hard and you will get there. 
climb to the top, dig your heels in and make your way. Like we're also enmeshed in this idea of the idealized worker as being the one that is not self-sacrificing necessarily and selfless and be like, no, you just go ahead of me. I don't need that promotion. No, no, it's a different energy for the good worker versus the good selfless mother. And so in that way, just ideologically, we can be pulled in these different directions. But if we were to look at it even more tangibly or practically, the way that work is set up in our society is generally not compatible with the care work of children. It's just not. You look at systems, regardless of what country you're listening to this in, some are better than others, but just the way that we have our policies set up for supporting women after they've had babies is really abysmal and it puts women in really hard situations and it can feel as though you're the one individually having to choose but actually let's always remember that our choice is always in context and a lot of the time mothers are navigating constraint rather than leaning into freedom of choice and so Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why it can feel like such a pull and this tension Because actually the way that our daily lives are often set up and structured and the ways that companies and organizations are structured, again, not wanting to make blanket statements because there's certainly examples of places that do this well, but generally it makes it really hard for you as an individual to navigate doing both. So what struggles do you find most women you're speaking with come up against when it comes to going back to paid work after they've had their babies? What seems to be like the overarching struggle these women are having? Look, financial struggles in when do I have to go back? Can I afford to go back? Can I afford not to go back? Childcare, where am I going? Do I have childcare? Is it accessible? Is it affordable? Is it quality? What does it look like? What is my family situation? Do I have family connections that are around that could support me? Oftentimes either no or yes, but they are in full-time work as well. So Mm. it can look like actually who's going to do the caring? Someone has to do the caring. So if I'm not able to do it in my paid work, in my career, someone else is going to need to. And and where is that? How do I afford that? How do I access that? There can be relational challenges that come up between mothers who are partnered in going, okay, what do our roles look like? We went into parenthood expecting to have and having conversations about things being equitable or not, not defaulting to traditional gender roles. And then here I am, I find myself in this place that I had actively decided I didn't want to be. And this is where we're at. So having conversations with those who you're in relationship with, looking at what are the requirements of you being able to sustain and afford the life that you're leading and living, what you may like that lifestyle to look like. Um, these are all of the really big sort of changes and that we need to wrestle and grapple with. And this is also why, this is part of why I went into running my own business to try and grab at more agency in how to navigate these two essentially competing worlds. How do you personally find your push-pull between motherhood and your career? You, You often butting up against things or are you just a perfect unicorn that's got this all down pat and you found this elusive balance between the two? I don't think of it so much as balance. I think of it as integration. It probably helps because look, it can be helpful, but then also another barrier in the fact that a lot of my work is centered on motherhood and mothering. So I tend to, in the programs I run and the women that I work with, they tend to pretty much all be mothers. And I try and be transparent around the ways that I'm navigating what that integration can look like. And that there are certainly times at which my mothering needs to come priority. And that means that I have to cancel a podcast interview or I have to push out the start of a course or whatever it may look like, but I've got the flexibility to do that because I'm self-employed. There are other ways in which though that my work has had to come first. I've had to say to my daughter or navigate the patchwork of care because I'm a single mother, what can that look like in me trying to engage in writing or thinking or work whilst also caring for her and trying to do so in a way that doesn't mean I'm constantly running a treadmill of never being able to be fully present with either my work or my mothering. Mm -hmm. So there are all of these benefits of integration that can come in thinking about how we can blend our lives together in a way that's sustainable, whilst also going there are some times where boundaries and separation can be really important. So I just move with it in a fluid and flexible way. And I have challenges as every mother does. Um, But dialing down the pressure of even thinking about or using the word balance in my head 
I find that to be a strategy that's useful for me. And noticing too, there are parts of our lives that are outside of work and mothering. You know, so what do my friendships look like? What's my health look like? What are my relationships with other family members look like? So just also shining a little bit of a spotlight on all of those other dimensions of our lives mm-hmm. as well. I like the word integration. I think that feels really good to me as well. Balancing is really hard. I can't stand on one foot very easily. So I quite like that word. And it's a great point you make because I often find I don't feel very good when I've got my work hat on or my mothering hat on. And they're the only two ones that I'm juggling. And it's like, trying to do well in work, then trying to do a really good job as a mother, and then not really shining a light on all the other aspects that make up a really beautiful life, because it's not just about mothering and working. I think that's really important as well, because you can, I can see how for me anyway, you can very easily get into that like tag team where you switch between the two and you keep switching and you forget about all the other things that can make up your life. So I really like that you mentioned that. Do you think that So much of why women struggle with this conundrum is because we don't value the unpaid work of what mothers are doing in the home. I think that's part of it. I think it's complicated because I think mothering is absolutely devalued and needs to be more valued as all unpaid care work needs to be. It makes up a huge part of our economy. It's how our society continues to function. So I certainly think that it is really devalued and needs more, more value directed towards it. At the same time, I think that it can sometimes then be a slippery slope into essentialist arguments of essentially, you're a mother, therefore mothering your children needs to be the most important work there is that you're doing. And that means it's going to always come first before any kind of career or paid work pursuits. That's where you need to focus your energy. And it's a cap on our agency and on our opportunity and capacity. Mm -hmm. So I think it's this, it's this path that we walk especially as leaders in this space of talking about motherhood culturally, we just walk it carefully and and are really conscious of who we're speaking to, what are the contexts of the people that we're speaking to, and listening to what is it that mothers want. Now, when we look to the research and we interview mothers and survey them about what do you want your career and mothering to look like, majority of women will say at different stages of their life, a blend of the two. And Interestingly, in the research, there's lots of different things, but a predominant finding is that majority of mothers who identify themselves as primary carers want to be able to have mothering as a central anchor point in their lives. We value the relationships with how we have with our children and our skill set and our capacity to mother. So finding ways to honor that prioritizing, maybe not even prioritizing, but to just honor that value whilst also creating room and opportunity for other things in our lives as well. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. I resonate with that personally myself as well. I've always done both, but at the heart of it, like my biggest value is that I want to be with my children, but I so believe I can create space to work and to be of service in other ways. And But I always know when it creeps over into being too much and I always have, and I'm in a very privileged position working for myself because I get to be in charge of pulling myself back if it feels like it's encroaching too much and not integrating very well. Whereas I understand so many women aren't in that position where they have as much autonomy over how it looks for them. They might not have much say in how that looks for them. But I guess in terms of your advice for women juggling this, I know there's no black and white statement. I know there's no easy, here's how to solve like career and having babies and how to make it all work together. But What would your advice be for those women struggling? Does it come back to everything we spoke about in the first episode with acknowledging the shoulds, seeing where your guilt is coming up and knowing what your own values are? Or is there something extra that you have for these women, specifically when we're talking about paid work and trying to integrate that with their mothering? Yeah, so I'd answer that in a few ways. The first to be just to make the point alongside this that I think it can be valuable for us to think about all of the ways that our mothering adds to and enriches our work and how our work adds to and enriches our mothering. So they're so often held up as this dichotomy that are in competition with each other. But for us to just get curious about, okay, what are the ways in which actually this challenge that I'm having in trying to trying to race there to get my child from daycare before they close and I've missed out on this meeting? Okay. How can I look at this from a different perspective and see perhaps the value of what I'm teaching my child through this process? And we know also from research that mothers are really skilled workers. 
I just did a, a podcast earlier with Dr. Sarah McKay, a neuroscientist looking at brain changes in motherhood that can be seen across mother's lifespan once they have children. Mothers know how to get stuff done. <laughs> to, to forgive a blanket statement there, but to really challenge the stereotype that can exist socially and culturally, that we have this sort of mum brain incompetence, forgetfulness, oh, I'm pulled in a different directions, therefore I'm not able to do anything. That's not actually what plays out with the research. Connected to that, and as a second point, to, <laughs> to say, I want to say, it's not up to mothers to do the work of changing, it's up to society, culture, structure, and institutions. So there are ways in which actually we need bigger things to change around us in order for us to experience the level of freedom we deserve and may want. But then to move to the third thing and recognize, well, I'm one person, I can't change my entire company. Maybe you can make connections with other mothers, right? How we get things done is often not by doing them alone. We connect with others and find little inroads, little ways to create little cracks in that tent. Think about what could be something here that is innovative, that is creative that is potential possibility that would actually make an impact in my life and the lives of other mothers. And coming back to how can I as an individual become clear on what my options are, what I may need to let go of in order to invite a new possibility in, and to remember that we're allowed to change our mind. It may be like this for a particular season of our lives or of our mothering, but things are fluid and they shift and change. So allowing as much as we can flexibility within ourselves to maneuver through those changes. I know that's not a tangible, concrete response, mm. but hopefully it's enough for us to pick up and explore what that could look like in your lives individually. I love that. I think there's so many variations of how this looks in people's lives. So it is hard to give like a blanket yeah. response. How women integrate paid work and mothering is so unique to each person. How I work is very different to how you work. And I can imagine it's really hard to as much as I want to tell people, just do this and then things will be better. I totally understand that that can be hard. Before we wrap up, I just want to quickly touch on, I remember you mentioning in a podcast about the language around this care and career and how even you find it hard sometimes to not ask someone like, oh, what do you do for work? What are you trying to do to change the language around that? Do you have any advice for people who do find that a sensitive topic and they don't want to devalue mothers, but they also, it's a it's an easy inroad to find out about how someone operates in the world and what their interests are. So what sort of language do you tend to use that the listeners might be able to adopt to be able to have these more open conversations? Yeah, I think just not using the word work on its own. So adding something alongside it. Do you, are you in paid work? Or I do, it's weird to say, are you in wage labour? We're probably not going to say that somebody. But I think just getting curious as to who you're talking to, do that if you know that they have children. You could ask something along the lines of, are you caring full-time? Are you engaged in paid work? What does that look like for you? But ask them just a question that doesn't have to do with work as well. Like, how do you spend your days? How do you spend your time? Even we know that questions like, how many children do you have? is a really loaded question for ex people who've experienced grief, loss, miscarriage. So just getting curious about the questions we're asking while allowing ourselves to get it wrong, because we will. We're, this is okay. It's all experimental and it's building of social connections. And as I, th I think you're probably referring to a podcast episode I did recently where I, I asked somebody this question because they'd asked it to me and I asked it back. And then she said, I've taken 10 years off work because I've got four kids. I was like, oh my goodness. Mm. Okay. And just actually just naming that and being like, hey, you know what? That is a lot of work. I'm sorry that I asked it in that way. Yes. Yeah. So I think just allowing ourselves to play with it and know that we're allowed to also create new language to serve us in ways that our current language may not be. I love that. There's a humanity, right? Where we're all just trying our best and we're trying, yeah, we're learning and we're growing and we're evolving. And I really like that. I often ask people like, what are you up to today? Or, you know, yeah. what's on for the rest of the day? And I find that you often get all this same information, but without so much of a loaded question behind it or any sort of embarrassment or weirdness afterwards, if the response is not what you were looking for. And then you go, oh gosh, why did I say it like that? Oh, I've loved this chat so much. I think this is really... Like we said at the start, going to be very validating, and it was. Like I think so many women are going to be sitting there with this fish tank analogy now and really working out how this applies to their life and all the different rules and shoulds and things that they're placing on themselves unnecessarily and just taking one like little breath and taking one rule off their shoulder would be so powerful to them. And 
connecting with other women to ram the tank and just slowly create cracks, I think is so powerful. So I'm so excited for women to go away and take from this what they need. Are there any final words or things that women could work on today that are hot on your mind right now, Sophie? Yeah, thank you for this conversation. And I hope that your listeners have found it valuable. I suppose I would just end with you are not obligated to do any work. So just knowing that you've got all of this here and yes, you can come back to this conversation and re-listen, but just know that sometimes just doing the one next thing and getting through our day-to-day and giving ourselves a little bit of space or grace is often that's part of our liberation too. So this is work in order to do the unpacking, but it's not work you're obligated to do today or in a day. You've got space and time to be able to explore this. Let's not add to the mental load and to-do list by giving you too many things to take away. Thank you so much, Sophie. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you, Laura. Hello, mamas. I really hope that you love that chat with Sophie. I know I got a lot out of it personally. It was really powerful for me to sit down, pen to paper and actually write down what do I actually value? What is actually important to me versus what do I think I should do or how should I show up as a mother or what do I think my parents, my friends, my sisters, my, the TV, the media, my community, how do they want me to show up versus what do I actually want from motherhood? And I think it's so powerful when you actually sit down and do that and look at the discrepancies in those two lists because that's what causes a lot of pain and a lot of grievances in motherhood and life really when we're not showing up authentically as ourselves, but instead showing up as a version that we think we should be in order to be quote unquote perfect, which we know doesn't exist anyway. So I really hope this has been a really good food for thought experiment. I hope you do put pen to paper and you start thinking about what is really important to you. So I thank Sophie again for joining me. She is a wonder. Please go check her out at Dr. Sophie Brock on Instagram. She has amazing podcasts, amazing courses, amazing mentoring. So if you're interested in her work, go and check her out. And just a reminder, the Pregnancy Posse, which is my online membership program, weekly workouts, pelvic floor reminders, how to fix your pelvic and back pain, how to prepare for an active birth, it is closing down. I am closing this program that I've been running for, what, four years now because I am going to focus on being a mama of four very soon and I want all my attention to be there. So I've decided to close this down. This has been my go-to program for years and years now. It's where I started in the Physio Laura world and it's a real end of a chapter and I just don't want you to miss out. So if you felt called to sign up or if you're thinking, oh yeah, I'll sign up soon, please do it now because once the cart is closed it will not be opening again so I encourage you to go check that out thepregnancyposse.com it will be closing in the next week otherwise ladies I hope wherever you are you're having a wonderful day make sure you subscribe to the pregnancy with physio Laura podcast because we do have a few more podcasts left before the end of the year and I would hate for you to miss out have a wonderful day mamas and I will talk to you next week bye